Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. I'm with Bob Spies, my co-host, and a very special guest tonight. We've got an interesting and somewhat different uh, approach to our topic than usual, so I think you're going to enjoy tonight's show. Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, uh, Tim. We're really pleased to have Dr. David Pena Guzman. He's an associate professor of humanities at the San Francisco State University, and he studies a lot about ethics and uh, animal our relationship to animals the ethical relationship to animals and uh, he's got a background in the history and philosophy of science bioethics a person who uh, and some of the things he studied are like the personhood of chimpanzees suicide and non-human animals uh, when animals dream uh, imagination and consciousness uh, in non-human species and in his He's been interviewed and had work on the CNN, the New York Times, Forbes magazine, and, and Vice. So, uh, Dr. Uh, Pena Guzman, thank you for being our guest. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation tonight. And uh, we usually start our program by asking our guests uh, how they got into what they what they do and what, what their interests were, particularly early in life, and uh, a little bit of their personal professional history uh well no problem thank you for having me i'm very happy to chat with you about uh, both my research and maybe also my origin story by way of beginning um when i was young i lived in a household i grew up in mexico in a very small town um, near the city of puerto vallarta which is a well-known tourist destination uh, in the u.s and in canada and uh, i grew up in a household where Animals were not allowed. Uh, my grandmother uh, had a ban on all species except birds. And so I grew up with a relatively limited experience of, of other animals. Again, with the sole exception of seeing birds that she kept in cages. And so um, as a kid, I was not uh, drawn to animals. Uh, I actually was, according to my mother and grandmother, deeply afraid of animals whenever I ran into them. And, uh, you know, life develops in certain ways. Um, fast forward a few years. When I'm a teenager, I migrate to the United States for personal reasons tied to my family. And we landed in a household where there was a dog, a dog named Osa, and it became my job as the in-house teenager of 15 years old to take care of this dog. And so I, I developed my first personal emotional connection with an animal really at that age. Then I went off to college, and when I was away, very sadly, um, Osa passed away. This is before I developed any academic or scholarly interest in other species. And for a long time, the death of this particular dog didn't sit well with me. And I couldn't really thematize why. I couldn't explain to myself why occasionally I would keep coming back to this dog that I had in high school that passed away while I was away. Um, and I, I came to the realization a couple of years later that it was a sense of guilt on my part because me and my family did not give that animal, I think, the life that she deserved. Um, and, and at this time, I, I decided to pursue a graduate degree in philosophy. 
I uh, got an MA and a PhD. And while going through that training, I somewhat serendipitously took a course called Animal Studies. And it's a, it was a course that explored the question of animality from a philosophical perspective. So the, the guiding question for that course, which um, I'm mentioning here because that really is my origin story, uh, story in connection to my academic interest in animals. The guiding question in that course was, how do central philosophical concepts that professional philosophers write about all the time, like language, morality, ethics, um, thought even, how do those change or how would our definition of them have to change once you introduce biodiversity into the equation, once you start thinking from a not exclusively human perspective. And so that's what triggered me to start thinking about animals as a philosopher and to start asking questions primarily about the nature of animal behavior, the nature of animal cognition, um, and above all, again, given my specific disciplinary training, the philosophical and ethical implications of um, animal behavior and cognition and experience and sentience. And so now that I am an associate professor at San Francisco State University, um, I, I specialize in animal studies uh, and the intersection between ethics, philosophy, and biology. But all of it was by way of this personal experience, which was ultimately an experience of, of a sense of guilt over a dog that I wish we could have done better by. Yeah, that's quite a story. And maybe we should have you just mention your uh, your recent book because I think that's gotten quite a bit of press and uh, some listeners may want to look that up and just uh, get a little more information about that and it'll probably come up as we go along. But I think that's probably the, the basis for our, our discussion today. Mm-hmm. Yes, so um, I recently published this past year a book with Stanford University Press uh, called When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. And uh, this is the first book-length treatment of um, dreaming in other species. Um, in it, I look at some of the neuroscience uh, behind the mental activity that goes on during sleep in other species. And I talk about the philosophy of dreaming. So it is a book that tries to get us to think about the animal mind, not by looking at what most people who are interested in this question look at, which is what animals do when they're awake. Do they solve puzzles? Do they interact with others? Do they form complex social structures and hierarchies? But rather by looking at this dimension or this side of the animal mind that is typically hidden, hence the subtitle, precisely because it happens under the cover or behind the curtain of sleep, depending on what metaphor we want to use here. And uh, the central idea here is that if you look at what's going on when animals go to sleep, at their behavior, at the uh, patterns of neural activation that you can discern, it's very clear that other animals have a very rich, very complex inner life that comes out in the form of non-human dreams. And so the book is an investigation of that somewhat bizarre uh, hinterland of animal consciousness. That's interesting. Um, maybe we could start with something towards the beginning of this program fairly basic about how you would define consciousness because i think it's a it's a it's a subject that you see popularly 
discussed in all kinds of from all kinds of different angles and with different opinions and uh, what has struck me is that there there tends to be kind of a frustration of on an intellectual level with trying to define consciousness uh, for to me the consciousness is an experience and no, no matter how you define it from the outside in an academic sense there is this uh, is the the definition of what consciousness is is not the same as the experience of consciousness. Anyhow, I thought I would throw that out and see what how you'd respond to it. Yeah. No, you're right to use the term frustration. I think uh, those of us who work in the field of the philosophy of consciousness are a collectively frustrated bunch because we can't agree on <laughs> the central term that organizes most of the things that we talk about. And the reason for that is simply because consciousness is a very complex phenomenon that can be cut up in different ways, that can be seen from multiple perspectives, um, and that people, uh, including leading experts in the field, just define in radically, errantly different ways. Um, for example, some people tend to think about consciousness um, as inherently rational, as requiring some high level of cognitive function that we could describe as either reason or inferentiality, um, just raising the bar very high. Other people follow uh, this line of thinking more that, that it has more to do with experience and with feeling things or with sensing things rather than necessarily with having rational thoughts. And that those are only two very simple but divergent definitions. Um, and so in the book, I offer my own definition of what I take consciousness to be. And then I try to tie that definition, uh, which is experiential for me. It, it has more to do with, with a sense of embodied feeling, embodied emotion rather than rationality. And then I try to think about uh, how that might connect to, to dreams. Yeah, there's a phrase for that, right? The, the uh, term of art that you use to distinguish a way of thinking, the phenomenal experience, right? Yeah, that's correct. Phenomenal experience is a term that has become quite standard in academic writing about consciousness. It is somewhat misleading because it almost sounds like a, uh, like a compliment or a superlative, uh, a phenomenal mind. Um, but in the context of of philosophy and neuroscience, phenomenality is often presented as the opposite or in contradistinction to what is known as access consciousness. And access consciousness is precisely that more rational way of thinking about the mind that foregrounds language, rationality, and concepts. And one way to think about phenomenality is that it refers to phenomenal mental states which are those mental states that we find ourselves in whenever we experience any kind of phenomenon. Uh, so for example, when I see the color red, that's an experience, but it is not really a linguistic or a rational or a conceptual one. Similarly, when I feel pain, for example, if I, uh, let's say if I cut my finger while making my uh, morning snack, I just feel an intensity in my finger, but it's not a linguistic experience. It's not a rational one. And again, it is not a conceptual one. So phenomenal states have to do 
with pain and pleasure. They have to do with the senses, uh, with hearing, seeing, touching, and so on. And they also have to do with affect, with feeling certain emotions, um, even before you can conceptualize them to yourself. And so one way to think about um, the essence of this phenomenal way of thinking about consciousness is that it tries to capture everything that is pre-linguistic and pre-conceptual about our experience of the world. And I find that a very helpful way of thinking about consciousness, especially when one wants to move into the terrain of other species, because it bypasses this major problem that scientists and philosophers often face when they want to talk about animals, which is, well, how can you say that animals are conscious if they're not linguistic in the same way that we are, and when they're not rational by human standards of rationality? Uh, and the answer is, well, because that's not really what consciousness is. Consciousness is about these other things that matter tremendously. So wouldn't consciousness be um, a property of a, of a sensory and nervous system? And then uh, if that's true, uh, wouldn't you expect it, uh, even in the first invertebrates that have a, like a cylentrate that has a, a neural net in its tissues, uh, it's yes. somehow, it, it's, there's some aware, something you'd call awareness, however you want to define that, that's there. And it's, it seems to be, in my way of thinking, is kind of an emergent phenomenon uh, in, in, in evolution. Mm-hmm. I think that's correct. I, I myself wouldn't quite say that it is a property of a nervous system. I, I do think a kind of nervous system is necessary for conscious processing. Um, but I would say that the kind of conscious processing that a nervous system contributes to uh, is a property of the whole organism in its interaction with the environment. But that's right. Um, I think once you think about consciousness in this broadened sense, um, you move down the evolutionary uh, timescale quite a bit when you try to think about its origins. Um, you now have to start thinking about uh, quote-unquote relatively simple um, uh, precursors to, to modern animals that would already have some version, even if in a, even if in a simplified form, of what we call consciousness, which here comes closer to sentience slash awareness yeah this uh, i'm being reminded of an interview we did a couple of years ago on octopuses and uh, you know we ended up talking a little bit about consciousness then as well and in, and uh, more than that intelligence in because it's a question that scientists are grappling with is how octopuses perceive and process the information they get about the world and what I hear you and Bob both talking about is you know this is an emergent phenomenon meaning it it happens over and over again in evolution and if it happened in octopuses that was three to maybe 400 million years ago mm -hmm. uh, yeah so they're they're not a simple creature they're very complex creatures but they're completely and totally unlike uh, us or any of the other what we call higher animals that we think of as having the attributes of intelligence and consciousness. But if it, yeah, go ahead. 
Oh, no, sorry to cut you off. Um, I think the case of octopuses is particularly fascinating. Um, on the one hand, because as you mentioned, the, the split happened a very long time ago. We're talking about different biological taxa. Um, we're not just talking about different species, right? We're talking about very different levels of classification that point to, to an older, more ancient uh, break in the branching of the tree of life. Um, and so it suggests um, that certain kinds of functions that we take to be central to our understanding of, of who we are, like consciousness, would have evolved in parallel um, uh, independently of one another, or that they would have already been there in a common ancestor. So independently of which interpretation you, you take there, um, it, it leads you to see mind and uh, mental processing as much more distributed throughout the animal kingdom than we typically think of. Um, moreover, it also highlights what philosophers often call the multiple realizable, multiply realizable character of something like consciousness. And that's just a mouthful of a term <laughs> uh, to refer to the fact that something like a mind can be realized in organisms that are not similar to one another at all. So you can realize consciousness in, in a cephalopod like, um, like an octopus or like um, a cuttlefish, but you can also realize it in an insect or you can also realize it in a fish or you can also realize it in a mammal. So there are multiple ways of bringing that same kind of functioning into existence. So the character of consciousness could well differ between different different members of the animal kingdom. Uh, so you just don't have a pound of consciousness or an ounce. It's like an independent <laughs> thing. It's it's some kind of it's it's a you know it's it's some sort of a property that could be somewhat unique to the species in which it occurs, and different from other species. That's correct. And uh, that's, I think, a much more important point than uh, often academics give it credit for. And uh, the reason for that is because I think, and this is here my, my training as a philosopher coming to the ground, I think that there are different ways of justifying why we should care about other animals. So here I'm going to direct us in the ethical direction a little bit. One way of thinking about why other animals should be respected and treated with care is what is known as the similarity approach, because they are similar to us on X, Y, or Z grounds, right? Oh, it's because they really do have emotions. It's because they really do have minds. It's because they really do form social bonds like we do. But there is a philosophical tradition that turns this argument on its head and says, Actually, one reason to care about other animals is precisely their difference from us. It is about maintaining and respecting difference for its own sake. And when you think about any animal who is not, a, an, who is not human, uh, so here we're talking about the vast, vast, vast majority of living beings um, on the planet, they are all unlike us in very significant ways, even our closest evolutionary cousins like chimpanzees and bonobos. Um, and, and I think we need to learn to cultivate and to cherish those differences um, precisely because I think that's why we should keep 
those animals around and do everything in our power to protect them. Um, and the case of octopuses is just a particularly good illustration of this. Um, one of the things that we have learned about octopus cognition in the last 30 to 40 years is that they are so different from us that they actually violate what we tend to think of as a universal requirement for a conscious experience. And that is that the conscious subject be one or a unity. Um, and what we have learned about the organization of the nervous system of octopuses, their distributed nervous system, is that octopuses may somewhat paradoxically, I mean, this is almost hard to even imagine, to fathom, they might have two loci of consciousness in their body, one in the centralized brain and another one in the distributed nervous system that you find in their, um, in their tentacles, such that their tentacles sometimes act as independent self-conscious agents, um, independent of centralized control. Uh, and so if you want to think about something that's very, very different from our experience for which we have no analog uh, in human life, uh, you can't get a better example than the octopus. Interesting point of view. Uh, yeah, the, this sounds like an analog for the uh, biodiversity uh, argument. In other words, we, we should maintain biodiversity. But we should also maintain this diversity of conscious organisms. Yeah, I think that's right, um, that biodiversity is not just a, a diversity of bodily forms, but it is also about the mental functioning and the mental processes that come with those different bodily forms and that are inherently tied to those bodily forms, right? Because one thing that um, I, I do believe about minds is that they are inexorably embodied. And so minds reflect and express the bodily structure of the organism that enacts them. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it, it kind of goes against some popular descriptions of the, uh, of the origin of consciousness, where some people think it's some sort of a subatomic particle, which I find <laughs> almost laughable, but, you know, it, it's going around out there somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I am very much, um, even though I am not a biologist by training, I am a biologist by um, commitments and orientation in that I do think uh, consciousness is a biological organic uh, phenomenon and that the place to think about it is not in, in the domain of physics necessarily, <laughs> um, certainly not in the domain of logic or information theory. It is in, in the domain of, of the living. Well, you think like a biologist. I don't know if uh, I don't know if that's a compliment or not. I'll take it as a compliment. Yes. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, and our guest tonight is Dr. David Pena Guzman. He's an associate professor at San Francisco State University, and he is, uh, among other things, the author of a recent book, When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness, and we're exploring the very idea of consciousness in animals, and uh, I think I would like to hear about some of the scientific investigations being done, uh, because there's some interesting stuff on, you know, uh, how do you how do you answer the question of whether animals dream? That's a question that has been as you point out, I think debated uh, for quite a long time in the scientific community uh, with the uh, sort of these 
big tidal shifts of opinion from time to time uh, as we change our ideas about what dreaming really is. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you investigate that? As you say, it's a little hard to penetrate that veil. Yes, and to be honest, this is something that prevented me from really diving into this project at the very beginning, that I wasn't sure how to approach this question. Already in the case of humans, it's a very tricky thing. Uh, most of our access to the dream states of other human beings hinges on verbal reports. You, you have to ask other people what, they, what, what they've been dreaming about or if they had dreams or not, or if they remember them. Um, and so thinking about the dreams of other animals almost sounds like precisely the sort of thing that scientists should not be interested in doing because it almost seems to take you outside of the realm of, of empirical knowledge. Uh, maybe it's a little speculative. But what, what tipped me um, over, what, what tipped the balances for me in the direction of, of carrying out this book project is that I, I was overwhelmed by the amount of evidence that I found in already existing uh, research on animal sleep that suggested that there is something happening subjectively and consciously when animals um, take a nap or fall asleep um, and uh, go through their various phases of sleep. In the book, I talk about um, two or three, well, three kinds of evidence that, that I isolate and talk about, especially in chapter one, where I make the scientific case um, for animal dreaming. One of these is um, functional neuroanatomy. So we know, and this has been um, done primarily with, with cats ever since the 1960s, we know that if you take out a particular part of the pons, um, a brain structure in, um, in animals, that if you take out a particular part of the pons, you can affect an animal's relationship to dreaming such that they, instead of falling asleep and merely dreaming internally, they dream and then they physically act out their dreams. Um, and so this is a part of the brain that is typically responsible for cre creating an atonic state when we go to sleep. So when we pass out at night, our bodies simply, we, we lose control over them, right? That's why when we dream, we don't physically act out the actions that we are performing in the dream. Um, but we know that, again, that if you make a very clear um, intervention here at the level of neuro, uh, neuroanatomy, you can release quote unquote, the dream so that the organism acts it out even while it is still sleeping. So I look at some of this research, most of which came out of France in the 1960s and 70s, um, and talk about why it matters. I also look at behavioral evidence. So uh, we know that when animals fall asleep, they still do perform some behaviors that are indicators of a dream experience or a dream phenomenology. So think about, in the case of humans, a lot of research on dreaming has been focused on rapid eye movements. And the idea is that when your eyes are moving very fast, especially during REM sleep, it's because they map the movement of your eyes in the dream world as you are scanning the dreamscape or the dream landscape. 
So when in your dream, you're looking all over the place because things are happening, your eyeballs are actually moving in the real world, mapping those, um, mapping those movements. Um, and so there are some real behaviors that we observe in sleeping organisms that are, again, sim signs of what might be happening mentally. But by far, the, the kind of evidence that I talk about the most is neuroscientific evidence having to do with what is known as mental replay. Now, we know that when animals are awake and they perform a behavior that is of biological or social significance to them, just something that they, that they often do because it's an important thing for their mode of life, that behavior often comes with a very particular, easily mappable neural signature. So there is a clear pattern of neural activation that corresponds to it. What's interesting is that we have found out, and this is true of mammals, we have found this in birds, we have even, um, uh, it's, well, most of the work has really been done on mammals and birds, so let's just focus on those two for the time being. We know that when those same animals fall asleep, occasionally that very specific neural signature that we know associates with a kind um, of waking behavior suddenly reappears in the middle of the sleep cycle, uh, suggesting that the animal is mentally replaying or mentally rehearsing the episode from its waking life. Um, just to give a concrete example of this, um, and there is a lot more examples of this in the book, I talk about research on zebra finches. Uh, zebra finches are uh, birds native to Australia, uh, cute little birds. They make uh, a wonder, they, they have a wonderful way of singing that I find uh, very endearing. And these animals have to learn their bird song from experience. They have to listen to it from other people and then they have to rehearse it in order to memorize it. We know that their song is not innate or inborn. It has to be learned. And when they practice their song while awake, when they're actually chirping and uh, trying to memorize it by practicing it, it triggers a neural signature that we can map to the musical note. So we can map um, note by note the pattern of neural activation. And again, we know that when these um, organisms, when these finches fall asleep, the exact same pattern reemerges, suggesting that when they fall asleep, they start dreaming of rehearsing their song. They're having a sonorous or a musical dream. Um, and we know it not just because we see that pattern, but because the part of the bird brain that is responsible for musical processing lights up, and so does the part of the bird brain that is responsible for auditory processing. So not only are they quote unquote singing in their dreams, but they're also hearing their own song in their dreams, again, without making a sound. And so in the book, I talk about a lot of this evidence. Um, here I mentioned zebra finches, but I also talk about uh, mental replay in animals like octopuses. I talk about mental replay in rats. There's a lot of uh, work on rats. And I also talk about other neuroscientific evidence for dreaming, um, even in fish as well. Hmm. 
Now, when you say that you can see these things happen in the brain, how do you, how do you see them? Well, I don't see them because I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a scientist. So uh, this is research that I use uh, that has already been published on um, mental processing in these species. And they show up um, under... Um, MRI or... Yeah, yeah I mean, how, what are they using to see the brain activity? How, how do you perceive that? Yeah, for brain activity, they um, uh, they use uh, MRI. Uh, they use, um, but it's all electrophysiological information, essentially. So it's it's these M, probably these diagrams we're used to seeing, where they you know they have the color coded scan of the brain from an MRI, I guess. Yeah, um, and so most most of the evidence again is electrophysiological, with the exception of the functional neuroanatomical data that I mentioned in connection to um, to cats. And then the final category is behavioral observational data concerning what animals do with their with their body when they are asleep. Because sometimes, again, uh, think about something like sleep running. When an animal enacts a running behavior physically while still on their side in the middle of REM sleep, um, those kinds of behaviors can occasionally be um, be indicators that there is a clear dream unfolding internally. Yeah, I always thought my dog was dreaming because he'd be laying on the bed and his feet would be <laughs> kind of in the air, you know, pawing the air, and then he would he would go <laughs> start barking, yeah. whining. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and you know, to to all of this, I'll just add one more sentence here. We also have to add arousal data that I also talk about uh, in connection to all these animals. So whenever you see, you know, uh, the dog running around and maybe making semi barks in their sleep. Um, we have found out in connection to a lot of animals, again, that it's not just that there is neural activity and that there is motoric output. We also know that there are all the arousal um, indices of, of dream experiences. So respiration rate goes up, uh, blood rate, uh, blood pressure goes up. Um, and often you also see uh, facial markers of emotion in these animals. Um, for example, grimaces when it's a nightmare um, or uh, movements of eating when they might be dreaming of, you know, predator-prey relations. Um, and so individually, none of these pieces of evidence is compelling enough to say, well, the animal is definitely dreaming. But when you put them together and you have the behavioral, the neuroanatomical, the neurophysiological uh, neurophysiological and electrophysiological data, and the arousal data, all of it begins painting, I think, a very strong empirical case for saying that, that a lot of animals have dream experiences. And that's something that a lot of scientists, um, and I talk about this in the introduction of the book, have been unwilling to say up until now, again, because it just sounds a little bit bizarre. It sounds like a little bit out there. Um, and so what I try to do is I try to make the claim that it's it's not out there at all. It's in there already. It's in the data that we already have about what happens when animals sleep. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because I, I think there's been a long uh, history in academic science of kind of siloing different 
parts of the what we know about things and I think when when biologists of one description or another get a little bit too close to philosophy or ethics that I think they get a little bit uh, shy about what they're kind of willing willing to kind of entertain in terms of ideas but I always kind of like the ideas that uh, E.L. Wilson put forth in his book on consilience where he talks about you know bi biology is a huge thing it's more than we give it credit for and you know in a course or uh, you know it involves all all aspects of human behavior and sociology and behavior even politics to some extent is some sort of uh, uh, connection to uh, biological function. It, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think this is a place where my background as a humanist proved particularly helpful because I didn't have the same concerns maybe that scientists might have for good reasons, maybe for professional reasons. I don't know. Um, that when I began looking at things that push me in that direction, where things in in biology and in neuroscience start getting, a, they start approaching philosophy, that's where often empirically trained scientists will maybe slow down a little bit. But as a philosopher, that's where I that's where I hit the gas. Um, that's exactly <laughs> right. where I want to go because that's actually the terrain in which I feel most at home. Um, and so in the book, I do talk, I don't talk about it in terms of Wilson's uh, concept of consilience, um, but I do talk about something similar, which is this integrative method that I call for in, in our relationship to animals, which is a method that brings together empirical data from the sciences, but then looking at it asks fundamentally philosophical questions about what all of this means in a holistic way. And when I look at all the evidence that we have, my argument is that we have evidence for really complex forms of mental, uh, mental processing and conscious processing in the case of animals that involve not only memory, uh, but also attention and emotion and also cognition. And so uh, the, the, the the bulk of the book really is talking about the philosophy of animal minds in light of all this empirical data that justifies the claim that they they are also dreamers. You know, I think we're kind of moving towards a, a, some ethical considerations here in our conversation. Uh, but I, before we might get there, I'm, I'm wondering uh, how you would look at the, the function of dreaming in animals. It must have an adaptive significance uh, in terms of uh, this dreaming accomplishes something and allows these animals to be fitter in, in, in some sense and I think that probably applies to to humans as well but I was kind of hearing your take on what's what's the function of dreaming <laughs> so this is this is a very good question because I don't have an answer so the, the <laughs> reason I say that is when I wrote the book this question was front and center in my mind um, and and after a lot of consideration, I decided to exclude it from the, from the book. And the reasoning here was as follows. There are a lot of competing theories about the function of dreams, even just in the case of humans. Uh, you have some evolutionary theories um, that foreground things like threat rehearsal. So the idea is that when we dream, uh, we typically dream of slightly negative, worrisome things on average. 
And so it must be that the mind is, um, that our mind has evolved to rehearse potential threatening scenarios so that it activates a certain bodily behavioral program, even if it's all internally in our mind, so that in the case that we actually find a predator, for example, in, in nature, we'll be able to enact that program more, um, more quickly because we will have already rehearsed it mentally. So you have those evolutionary theories um, that focus on the species. You also have psychological theories uh, about the function of dreaming that foreground primarily emotional processing uh, and memory consolidation. Now, from a psychological perspective, the idea is that the reason that we dream is because it helps us sort through recent events that are stored in short-term memory, evaluate what is significant and what is not significant, and then discard what doesn't matter and keep what is really important into long-term memory. So we we do that. Um, I, I like there is a metaphor that I talk about in the book for this, um, which is that it's an emotional um, change. Um, what is... Um, what is that machine that you give it um, coins and it separates them? You know, it puts the quarters on one <laughs> side and the, the dime. Yeah, um, yeah. A change sorter or something the like sorting this. Sorting machine, yeah. Yes, and so one metaphor is that that's what dreams do with memories. They separate hmm. the quarters from the pennies. Hmm. Um, and so in the end, the reason I chose not to go into great detail about this and not to take a position on the um, evolutionary function uh, or the adaptive value of dreaming is because there is a lot of disagreement among evolutionary biologists about what the adaptive value of it really is. Um, and, and since I am not an evolutionary theorist, I thought I don't need to enter into this debate. And more importantly, for my philosophical purposes, it actually doesn't matter um, because it doesn't matter what its function is. What I am really interested in is what the fact that dreaming exists in other animals tells us about their minds and about our moral obligations to them. Um, and so it was a way for me to have my cake and eat it too, in the sense of avoiding um, a debate that I, I didn't feel um, comfortable entering and that I didn't have to enter. But it is a fascinating area of research. Yeah, yeah. And then avoid having a lot of people dismiss uh, some of your major ideas on account they disagree with. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> with, with the function of you know, their interpret your interpretation of what dreaming means. You know. Yeah. One time when I was an undergraduate, a professor of mine told me the strongest way to build an argument is to go for the weakest version of the argument that you actually need. Because if you over if you go for overkills. Um, it's more likely to to cause distraction. So only go specifically for what you need for your argument and no more. And I think that always stuck with me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. A variation of Occam's razor, yeah. Simplify your argument yeah. to make it stronger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah very, yeah, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, we have just maybe 20 minutes left or actually about 15 minutes left in the interview, I think. So uh, this is probably a pretty good time to move into the, the ethical considerations that I think are uh, a, a key part of what you're working on now. Yeah, so as I, as I mentioned earlier, the book begins with a chapter on the science. This is the, uh, the neuroscience, the behavioral data, the arousal data, all just put together to build 
um, the first the first step of the argument, which is that other animals do dream, and we have we have good empirical reasons for thinking that. From there, the book moves into the domain of philosophy and theories of mind, where I talk about well, once we accept that. What does this tell us about the kinds of subjects that other animals are? What does it tell us about their awareness, about their emotion, about their attention, about their cognition, and even their metacognition? And also about their capacity to imagine things that are not there because dreams are fundamentally imaginative. After that central part of the book, which is philosophical, I then turn to the question of ethics in the fourth and final chapter. And there I make the argument that I, well, I point out that when you try to think about ethics in its most fundamental sense, it is the discipline that tries to give us an account of who matters and why they matter. Uh, you know, we typically accept that I don't have any moral obligations towards a chair, but I do have some moral obligations toward my neighbor. Um, you know, I, I can't, I can kick the chair if I want to, um, but I, I probably shouldn't kick my neighbor with the same kind of moral disregard. And the difference there seems to be because in some way, my neighbor is conscious or sentient in a way that the chair or the rock or the bicycle are not. Uh, I'm looking at things around my living room right now. So I saw my bicycle and I'll, I'll mention that. Now, in philosophy, there's a lot of disagreement about how we define consciousness. We already mentioned this. And this has repercussions for ethics because if we argue, uh, like a lot of people do, I think this is quite a common um, this is quite a common view, even among non non-professional philosophers, that the things that matter are those that are in some way conscious. Those are the ones that we should care about. Um, there is, again, this disagreement of, well, but what exactly is consciousness and what kind of consciousness is the one that really matters? And this is where the debate that I alluded to earlier between more rationalistic or intellectual or cognitive theories of consciousness and the more embodied, emotional, and affective ones really comes into, uh, into focus. Because there are a number of moral theorists who say, in, in connection to ethics, that only those beings that have high-level uh, rationality matter morally. Uh, and uh, so they will simply assert that if you don't have rationality, then nobody owes you anything from an ethical perspective. You can be killed, you can be disregarded, you can be abused without any uh, moral qualms. Um, and this has just terrible consequences, not just for certain humans that are deemed to be non-rational. So let's think here about um, cognitive disabilities, for example. Um, let's also think about young children uh, who are not yet rational. And it also has terrible consequences for non-human animals, again, because we, we, we think of them as, as not having the right kind of intelligence. And so for me, this way of thinking, it's so focused on reason and language and concepts and inferences that 
it fetishizes intelligence in an illegitimate way. And I make the argument that from a moral perspective, what ought to matter are those more basic, fundamental capacities that are tied to experience, that are tied to sensation, uh, and that are tied to, to feeling um, as the foundation for moral significance. Um, and so the, the things that ought to matter are, are those entities that feel, that perceive, and that experience more so than um, organisms that are hyper-rational and hyper-intelligent. Um, of course, as a philosopher, I think that reason and intelligence, you know, they have a place in life and they, they are significant. It is not to devalue those, but I don't believe that they are the foundation of morality. And so the book argues that since dreams fall into the second category. Dreams are about perceiving, they are about feeling, they are about sensing. They're not really about rationality. One of the things that we know about dreams is that, in fact, they're quite irrational most of the times. They make no sense 90% of the time. Uh, when you're in a dream, even the, the so-called rational part of your brain um, is actually turned off. Uh, so the part that is in charge of executive planning, executive control, um, rational, um, rational thinking is deactivated. And so to be a dreamer is actually to, to feel, to perceive, to experience. And that's the sort of thing that gives what I call in the book moral status. So this is the, the very kind of long winding argumentative road by which I, I, I try to make this argument that dreaming actually is directly connected to ethics because it proves that animals are the kind of being that deserve respect uh, and moral consideration. Wow, there's a lot to chew on in there, huh? <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> no, no, this is great because uh, I'm thinking that this is this is a great show for us in, in many ways. Um, not only is it a fascinating topic and you're extremely eloquent at describing it, but you know, we're extending science a little farther into the realm of everyday existence than maybe we usually do. We tend to, uh, as Bob said, silo our thinking. So we'll talk about a particular organism and how it makes its way in the world. And, uh, you know, that's very interesting and fascinating. Uh, but now we're talking about extending the way we think about other organisms. And that comes back on us now, you know, how we make mm -hmm. our way in this world. Uh, and there are some pretty profound consequences here. Yeah, and there's all kinds of <laughs> implications for management of resources, or yeah. even the view, even the view that we manage resources. Um, mm -hmm. Well, and that's the thing about biology and ecology, and really all of the life sciences that deal with the living. And that is that they reveal to us things about the complexity of other animals that once you accept them might have ethical consequences that we didn't realize. Um, and so sometimes it puts those of us who work in close connection to science in a bit of a catch-22 situation where the more we learn about animals, for example, um, about how complex their inner lives are, about their emotions, about their ability to feel pain and pleasure, maybe it means that we are less and less justified in doing certain things to them, including some things that we do in scientific contexts. And so I think that that connection between science and ethics 
um, has always been there um, because the two are, are in constant dialogue with one another. Um, and, and it would be very odd for us to be interested in animals and to want to learn things about them or about environments and ecosystems and then not want the things that we discover to actually change the way in which we act toward those animals or those ecosystems. Uh, if, if we look back a couple hundred years to the history of science and back to the days of Darwin and how the human race considered uh, other animals on the planet and and uh, and other life forms on the planet, it's been kind of a, a history of revelation of um, the humans are not as special and as different and uh, as animals and we kind of looked at animals and humans as two separate things and the more we study things the more enlightened we become the more we realize that uh, the differences aren't as great as we had once imagined to be and then that has all as you say all kinds of uh, ethical implications. Well, and in this regard, I think the 19th century was light years ahead of the 20th and 21st century, because when you read 19th century naturalists like Darwin, um, but also a number of others, you really get the sense that they were challenging human-centric thinking, that they were really thinking about how their discoveries would change the way in which we position ourselves at the center of the cosmos. Um, and that sense that that we exist on a continuum with other animals, not just morphologically uh, or behaviorally, but also mentally, that there is a, a spectrum of mental activity, a spectrum of imagination, a spectrum of memory, um, is something that we have kind of forgotten recently as we re-entrench this idea that um, in the 20th and 21st century, that no, maybe we really are special. And in fact, in, in the opening chapter of the book, I conclude my analysis of the scientific data by saying maybe we need to try to rediscover this wisdom of the 19th century that we have lost. And that is to really try to think in a non-anthropocentric manner. Definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. For, and it brings to mind a, a conversation I've had many times with people over the years about the, you know, the dichotomy between the natural world and the human world and we tend to talk as if humans aren't part of nature and so we often and and this has ramifications in biology and ecology we you know uh, we talk about non-native species and demonize them you know an invasive species uh, because they're not natural but in fact that is a natural process and humans the fact that humans transport species around doesn't really distinguish humans or the other species other species have been doing that for most of evolutionary history and so but we still persist and i think you're right it is uh, very much a 20th century thing in believing that humans are not natural creatures and therefore mm -hmm. what we do isn't the same as what nature does uh, mm -hmm. that's that's an really coming through loud and clear that that is a uh, a mistaken way of thinking and it leads us down some dangerous paths. I'm, I'm detecting some things in some of the scientific journals at least uh, in the science there's been a number of articles uh, recently talking about uh, you know our treatment of for instance chimpanzees and uh, how we feel entitled to 
do a lot of experimentation with chimpanzees in order to uh, hopefully do something positive for the human species but at the cost of other animals and and I've always been really nervous about things like seeing experiments where people are actually implanting things in the brains of uh, various kinds of uh, apes mm-hmm. and uh, in, in order to to learn something or to, uh, to actually advance our knowledge in some some area of pharmaceutical application and um, so that I think Hopefully, there's maybe something starting to go back the other way, but uh, I think I think it's hard to underestimate the arrogance of the human species, for sure. <laughs> I could agree more. And uh, this this area of animal protection and animal rights is is another field of of my research. Here, we've mostly focused on on the cognitive neuroscientific dimension, um, uh, but it's again intricately connected because you can't think about who other animals are without then posing these additional questions about what our moral obligations towards them are and how those obligations maybe should be codified in the form of animal rights. Right, right. And there you have it. You've been fairly active, I think, in the chimpanzee question as I kind of briefly skimmed your resume. Oh, yes, yes. So before publishing this book, When Animals Stream, I co-authored another book called Chimpanzee Rights, um, which is about whether or not our, again, our closest evolutionary cousins should be granted legal personhood. Um, And all of this was the result of of a legal collaboration between me, a group of other philosophers, and a legal nonprofit organization that um, tried that that brought uh, a, a habeas corpus um, challenge in court, trying to make the argument that that chimpanzees are persons like us, and that means that you cannot keep them captive uh, legally. So um, this this is another area of my work that is much more closely tied to law. Yeah. Well, with that, I think we are out of time on the Ecology Hour tonight. I hope that you all listening have enjoyed this conversation as much as Bob and I have, uh, stimulating and and eye-opening for sure. We've been speaking with Dr. David Peña-Guzman, who is an Associate Professor in Humanities at San Francisco State University, and he is the author, most recently, of the book When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. We'll put links to some more information about his research and his publications on our website, which is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Do you have some uh, suggestions for where listeners could go for more information if they want to follow up on this, besides getting your book, of course? (laughs) Well, they definitely can get the book. They can also um, follow. I, I have a podcast of my own where I talk about some of these issues and other philosophical ideas. It's called Overthink. And uh, you can find it in any place where you get podcasts. And you can also find me on my university page at Uh San Francisco State uh, University, sfsu.edu. Thanks, Dr. Peña-Guzman. This has been a really, really great hour. Yeah, fantastic. I've wanted to explore this area with somebody who's really specialized in it for a while. So, uh, great. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. 
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.